Nacho Fernández contra Felipe, va al centro, va a la busca Matías Suárez, lo puede Arao y está Borré. individual, arrumou pro Arrascaeta, bateu Gabriel, gol! Diego. E Gabi, gol a todo o Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. On this edition, we'll be reviewing the dramatic Copa Libertadores final between Flamengo and River Plate, as well as discussing the various political situations here in South America at the moment and how that is impacting on football here. Joining me to discuss all that, first up is Simon Edwards, based in Colombia. How are you, Simon? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good here in Medellin. It's been an interesting few days in Colombia, um, but uh, the sun is shining and uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm on the streets, uh, largely a positive thing. But uh, yeah, I'm personally very, very, very well. Coming up to December, Christmas, uh, I'm, I'm good. And also joining us is Tom Nash, also known as River in English. He's based in Argentina. How are you, Tom? Recovered yet from Saturday's disappointment? Hi, Adam. Yes. Um, yeah, still still recovering. It's going to take a long time to, to get over losing the final in such circumstances. Um, I'd say there's a fairly philosophical and, and proud atmosphere in, in our corner of Buenos Aires at the moment. So, um, yeah, I'd say recovering is probably the best word. Yeah, more on that in a minute. And last but not least is Tom Robinson. He's uh, he's based in the glorious South American city of Norwich. How, how, how are you doing, sir? <laughs> yeah, for, for the time being, I am um, just kind of been globe trotting for the last uh, couple of months. But um, yeah, I'm good. Uh, back from my trip to Argentina, um, suffering in, in in the cold, but uh, yeah, looking forward to chatting some South American football after what's been a little bit of a, a little bit of a while for us. <laughs> Perked up by Villa's result last night, no doubt, as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, commiserations to Steve Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, let's get started with that dramatic Libertadores final between the Brazilian Giants Flamengo and the Argentine Giants River Plate. Um, it was uh, for, what, 90 minutes, I think we can say. It looked like it was going to be a deserved victory for, for River Plate. In my eyes, um, I was quite surprised at the at really how poor Flamengo played for certainly the first half of the game. They didn't seem to get going at all, and and it just looked like River Plate had done a a perfect job on them. Really, 
Um, but then, yeah, suddenly two goals in the in the final few minutes of the game turned it all around. And for the first time since 1981, Flamengo lifted the Libertadores. So I'll come to you first, Tom, in in Argentina. How has this gone down there um, amongst River fans? Um, looking at the social media footage, it's, it seems like the defeat has been taken pretty well, really, especially given just the just how it happened. But is there anybody in particular coming in for for criticism as to how you let it slip away? Um, yeah, I, I think, like you say, obviously the 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 hours that, that followed the game were just the, the level of shock, and disappointment was just huge uh, to lose a game in those circumstances. Is is cruel. It's really cruel on the fans and the players. Um, but like you say, there's there's an atmosphere at River that um, you know it's a squad that's achieved so much in the last few years that uh, people still feel more pride in in this team than they do frustration or or anger at that one particular result. So there was quite a surprising show of support on the Sunday afternoon. Actually, if you you go through the footage, you'd think there was a team celebrating a victory, whereas actually they're coming home defeated and they were still welcomed back by thousands of fans who gathered outside the stadium on the Sunday afternoon to to bring them back, you know, songs and flares and flags and the whole procession that the Argentine fans are, are so well known for. So, yeah, they're, they're, you know, the fans are still almost still basking in the glow of, of last year's win against Boca. I think it was it was it was the final that defined a generation in a way so it looks as if it will uh, the sort the sort of glow of, of that win will will overshadow everything at least for the short term so um yeah i mean obviously the fans were just hugely disappointed on full time the, the criticism came in for for prato um for the way he he just failed to manage possession properly in the in the last minute you know if you, if you go back to the equalizing goal uh prato has a he holds on to the ball. He has a great chance to to give it to Montiel in space, who was, you know, out on his own on the right wing. It would have just been a simple 15-yard pass to a teammate in space, and Prata takes an extra touch, and he loses the ball, and then Flamengo are able to break against the River team, which only had four players properly back at this point. Um, so, yeah, there was criticism for Prata, and the, there was criticism for Gachado as well. Uh, people think that he... A lot of people think he got the the substitutions wrong, or perhaps the the strategy towards the end of the game wrong. Um, but you know, it's all within context. These are player, the, you know, this manager and this this player in particular as well, Prato. They've they've achieved so much, and they're so loved by fans that you know we're, we're being sort of simultaneously honest with the fact that yeah, you know, you messed up in the final minutes of a cup final, but. Yeah, we we're not ungrateful. We still recognise everything you've done for the club. So, um, sort of the, those two contrasting sentiments are living side by side, really, at the moment. Yeah, I'll, I'll just come across to the other Tom to discuss it. How how exactly did? Well, how did you watch this, Tom? Did did you go out anywhere to to see it, or or were you just at home? And also, you know, what what do you think exactly went wrong there for River in the last few minutes? Because from my perspective. And I've I've looked at it a couple of times. Yes, there's errors there, but I think it's harsh to sort of blame the manager or or, or any particular player 
on it. I, in some ways, it, it just does feel a little bit like one of those things that just sometimes happens in, in those huge games. Yeah, I don't think you're too far off there. I mean, um, starting with how I watched it, um, obviously I benefited from uh, the fact that it was on free-to-air BBC2 um, with, yeah, a nice, interesting panel of, uh, of, of Chapman, Gilberto Silva and, uh, and Jonathan Wilson. A um, bit more confused by the inclusion of Stephen Warnock on co-coms um but yeah generally speaking I just had some friends over we watched it here whereas last year when when I was watching the final it was a case of going out to to a pub and watching it so yeah, it was uh, it was it was good that it was a lot more available to people over here and I think um yeah I don't know what the figures were like but certainly talking to people the amount of people who are messaging me through through the game and and talking to me at work about it afterwards it seemed like it did definitely capture the imagination of people and and that thrilling final really did um in many ways live up to um the excitement certainly the atmosphere i think a lot of people commented on um even though i don't don't know if it was as much of a a crazy atmosphere as i think we're used to when it's just a, a full home uh, support uh, cheering on their team but certainly that was one of the things that sort of was uh, most people drew a lot of um, inspiration from um but yeah do you think that it had a better atmosphere than michael portillo's uh great continental railway journeys oh, i mean that's, that's uh, originally scheduled that's very, <laughs> yeah very tough to uh, compete with those levels of excitement and drama uh, but uh, yeah i think uh, yeah for the fact that it riled a few people up who are more interested in in that was uh, probably another added bonus uh, but yeah in terms of the actual game yeah, I, I definitely agree. I thought after an equal 10 minutes or so at the start of the game, River managed just to get a stranglehold on the game. There was just so much energy and defending from the front line that, you know, the amount of energy that Borre and Suarez put into sort of pressing the defence, making those little tactical fouls and chasing every uh, every ball into the channel um, just really set the tempo and, and the midfield um really dominated flamengo in in a way that i probably perhaps wasn't um expecting you know flamengo coming off this amazing unbeaten run absolutely flying in the league scoring tons of goals but it, if it was the first time you're watching flamengo you'd be you'd be quite surprised and and river looked to be more potent and certainly going forward they were creating lots of chances um so yeah the second half there's obviously going to be a slight drop in intensity and that's understandable. And I definitely thought from maybe, um, maybe about 65, 70 minutes in that they began to tire a little bit. They were looking a little bit leggy and that's, that's when Flamengo started to get a few chances. But even then, as you said, yeah, they had a few chances. They had that one glorious opportunity where uh, Gabby Gold's shot was blocked and then Everton Rivero shot straight into the arms of Armani. But apart from that, you, you kind of thought, yeah, that there's, yeah, they're pushing, but you, you never thought that goal was coming. So so when it did, I think it was just one of the, like you said, one of those things in football where, yes, Prato's the obvious fall guy because I don't know what he was doing, dallying on the ball, not once, but twice. Um, and if I, don't, I think if he just cleared that ball or, or kept hold of it, then River probably win this game. So that's the inevitable person they, that I think everyone's going to look to. And Guijalo's substitutions didn't really make much of an impact. I, I would I was surprised maybe someone like Zuccolini um, didn't come on in the centre of midfield just to you know keep the legs going. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I don't think you can 
necessarily blame it. And yeah, as as Tom said, there most River fans seem to have uh, have taken it in in fairly philosophical and uh, and it terms. And yeah, that kind of the phenomenon of of a moral victory can probably be some sort of piece uh, for for the River fans. Uh, what, what did you think? Do you think there was any turning moments in the game at all, or or, or how did you see it, Adam? No, I I think the Gabby goal miss. I think it was around the hour mark, wasn't it? I, I think that's when kind of a theory about him touching the trophy before the match kind of <laughs> yeah. reached, uh, reached its peak as to that's really jinxed Flamengo in in this game. But in the end, none of that, none of that mattered, of course. Um, no, it's just, yeah, I'd, like you could say, I've, I think the second goal, I think there is, you know, a couple of individual errors there. Panola especially probably should deal with that ball better than he did. But what I mean by kind of, yeah, I think it's difficult to blame Gallardo or the, the team in general, is, yeah, it didn't feel like that Flamengo comeback was, was on the cards. It wasn't like River had dropped and, and they were being, you know, dominated for the last 15, 20 minutes. I actually thought they were controlling the, the final stages pretty well. Yeah, you know, I watched it with a with a mate of mine, and we were just open mouthed when Flamengo scored those two, especially a second goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it just didn't feel like, you know, where did that come from? You know, we, we were actually looking forward to extra time, so it was like slightly disappointing when, when the second goal went in as well. But yeah, it's uh, how how did you see it, Simon? We we haven't brought you into the discussion yet, so any thoughts? No, it was it was an interesting one. I, you know, I thought that there was a real stark difference between the way that the River play players were pressing and the Flamingo players were pressing. You look at um, the forwards, uh, Gabi Gol, Bruno Enrique, Diaz Creta, as well to an extent, Everton somewhat were quite isolated up front and there were there were large spells particularly in the first half where because of the high pressure of River Plate the only passes that they could make in defence were, were lateral passes occasionally into midfield where then they go back and they really couldn't find the forwards who were quite isolated high up the pitch um, and it, for me it looked as though they, they they weren't in the game for large spells you know I think there's changes as well um, bringing on uh, Julian Alvarez uh, was an interesting one. It did mean that River Plate took off uh, Nacho Fernandez, which was a to me it was somewhat of a strange one as well. A very young kind of attacking player bringing him on in that kind of game when you're looking to manage things was a bit strange. Uh, the, the first goal for Flamengo, uh, I think Bruno Enrique, who didn't really have a great game, uh, was really good on that goal. Came inside, beat a couple of men, and then slipped a nice pass through. So, I mean, it did show that the quality was there once Flamengo were able to get the ball to their forwards. Uh, but I, I did think for most of the game, they were very, very isolated. Um, and they just didn't really have anything. Uh, Gabby Cole turned up on the 89th minute and got sent off in the 93rd minute. So he played five minutes, basically, in that game for me. Uh, obviously, that chance he missed as well. Uh, but yeah, very, very strange game in a lot of ways. Exciting at the end, but I'm a neutral, about as neutral as it can get. But I was really disappointed to see those goals going in just because I didn't think Flamengo deserved it. Also, it's worth considering, I mean, Obviously, Flamengo have had a lot of plaudits in Brazil for how well they played in the attacking football. But it did feel to me somewhat that they were set up in a way that would perhaps work well against Brazilian opposition that perhaps traditionally sit back a bit deeper and look to stretch the game out and, and, and play wide and, and use pace and 
and maybe the defence don't push up as much as, as River did and defend from the front. So it did feel to me the narrative was looking like Flamingo, great against Brazilian opposition, he'll sit back. But if you press them, then they, they can't really do it. And obviously the result puts that on its head. But uh, yeah. for me, yeah, an interesting game, but, but tough to tough for River. Yeah, I think you might be onto something there because Flamengo's route to the final... I, well, I think they played Brazilian sides in the in the quarters and the semis. No. Yeah. Have I yeah, they played Emelec right? in the round of. Yeah, they yeah. played. Um, was it Internacional and then Gremio? Yeah. So on that evidence of that ninety minutes in Lima, you would say that it would certainly be an interesting if they were in the other half of the draw and and they and they had some non-Brazilian opposition to deal with um, because I. I hadn't even really considered that until um, somebody mentioned it the, the other day to me. Um, and I think, you know, I, 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 I praised them quite a lot whenever we did do pods, which wasn't often <laughs> in, this, uh, in these last few <laughs> months, as, as our listeners will, uh, will surely be aware of. Um, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, maybe, like Simon says, their style's more effective. It's... You know, I've, I've said that yeah, this is probably the most attractive Brazilian side I've seen, Brazilian club side I've seen in, in the Libertadores for, for many a year. Um, it, you know, in past years, we've said you know, Brazilian sides can be pretty dull, but they can win games on, on, like, on just moments, you know, an, an odd moment of brilliance here and there. I, mean, I didn't think that this Flamengo side would win the final like that, but that's exactly what they did in the in the end. They they won it with just a couple of moments of of, of brilliance in that in that last five minutes. Yeah, I think that um, the 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 fact that most people maybe would have edged towards Flamengo being favourites for the game, but the way the game actually panned out, yeah, as we said, kind of was almost the opposite in terms of we kind of expected River to be the the cup specialist, the ones who'd have ice in their veins and and probably. If, if they were going to nick it or something, they'd, they'd have that experience in, in these situations to, to do something like Flamengo did. But then, and whereas Flamengo were the side that, yeah, we, we thought were, were going to play them the nice football, the attack, attacking swashbuckling football. And it was kind of a, a bit of a role reversal there. So it was kind of a, a strange final. And, and as Simon said there, I think, yeah, bang on about the, the tactics um, sort of working well in Brazil, but maybe not against um, other nations. Because from, from what I'd seen in, in the Brazilian league, they, they seem to be a lot more compact there, whereas they just had to have such gaps between midfield and attack and, and also um, defence and, and midfield. And it just, I was surprised that their fullbacks not really getting forward. I thought Rafinha was decent defensively, but um, didn't really see much of Felipe Luis, which was, was a bit of a surprise. So, yeah, I... I wouldn't be surprised if maybe that style of football could potentially be exposed at the the World Club Cup. I mean, we've seen in the last three editions only only Gremio getting to the to the final and and both River Plate and Atletico Nacional kind of falling bef- uh, and not getting not getting that chance to play against the uh, the European champions. So, I mean, do it do we think that that could potentially be on the cards. And also, I'll throw out to the, to the rest of the pod what they think the next steps for, for Gabby Goal are now. I saw that the Flamengo manager, George Jesus, he said after the game that um, that he thought it was a better 
uh, final than the Liverpool-Tottenham Champions League final earlier in the year. Now, in terms of drama, they, you know, he's, he's definitely correct there, but he, he also said in terms of quality. Now, although it wasn't great, that, that Liverpool-Tottenham game, there, there was an element that the two sides knew each other pretty well and, and they sort of cancelled each other out. But, the, you know, the general quality of football, I would say, was pretty poor on, on Saturday. The pass completion rates of, of both sides were, I think, well below 80%. So, yeah, it's. I, I just feel that um, I, I think they could be in, not for the first time in, in recent years, but I think the, the South American sides head into that World Club Cup. You know, first they've got to worry about getting past the semi-final, which has proved tr- tricky in recent years for, for South American sides. And then, yeah, it is very difficult to see Flamengo uh, beating Liverpool in, in the final. Um, personally, I, I, I can't see it at all. Yeah, I think uh, as well, looking at the fact that Flamengo conceded three against not a, an amazing Vasco team a couple of, you know, a few days before the final and the way that they set up, I just think if if they do end up with three or four players out of the game for large spells, then you just can't do that against a good European side. They'll just get past, they'll get past the death in midfield. So I just think, yeah, I think there's been a lot of talk about the quality of, of the coaching. But I think that was really exposed in the final. And, and again, obviously, Flamengo won the game. And, and they do deserve credit for hanging in there. And they deserve credit for getting those key goals at the moment, at the end. And, that, and that's great. But for much of that game, they were out of it tactically. And I think there's a blueprint there to play against Flamengo. You press them high. Vasco played two forwards and they got a lot of joy. Um, we saw the same thing from River. If Liverpool keep men forward and can cut off those passing options to the forwards... I just I think they're going to struggle. There is quality in that Flamengo team. Liverpool are arguably one of the best sides in the world at that. So exactly. that, that's that's why I find it very difficult to see uh, Flamengo victory. The only way I could see them beating Liverpool is if Liverpool just take it too lightly or something. And I mean, the success for South American teams in recent years has been defensive, hitting on the counter. And obviously, we were hopeful that this Flamengo team with the quality they have could maybe be more competitive in terms of the quality of football they provide, but they didn't they didn't turn up in the Libertadores final for much of it. And I think the the issues they had against uh, River Plate will be will be far greater against uh, against Liverpool. I think they could be exposed if they do play attacking football. But we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I mean they do have quality, they do have goals, but I do think uh, they leave a lot of space and I think on the evidence of, of the final, they can leave their strikers isolated, which which won't work against good opposition. I think one one tactical element, which River, I was hoping they would do this and they did it, they got it perfect as well, was to not let Gerson uh, get comfortable on the ball and start their moves rolling because he's the man who really links uh, the defence to the attack. The ball goes through him, he dribbles with it for 10 or 15 metres and then he picks his pass to Bruno Enrique or to Everton Ribeiro or... And that's when they really begin rolling. And if you look, the pattern of what happened during this final is that River really got on top of him, actually. They, uh, Palacios and, and Fernandes and Borre, or just whoever was closest to him, really just hassled him off the ball and fouling him too if you need to, but just stop him. And I was, I was screaming at the TV during the game so many times. Every time he got the ball, I was just screaming, no, into him, into him, just on top of him, just... Don't let him play. Don't let him play. Trip him up. If you have to, take the yellow card. Just 
stop Gerson from getting comfortable on the ball and starting these moves rolling, and you, you sort of nip it in the bud, you know, this, this great attacking machine suddenly finds that its ignition is just not working at all. So, yeah, that, that's a point where it's going to be a worry for them if they do get to play against Liverpool in the final because they're exactly the type of team who are, are going to employ that tactic. Uh, Gerson's not going to get those those 10 yards and those five seconds on the ball that he gets in the Brasileirao. And they're going to find need to find a way to construct attacks without his influence. Uh, because like Simon says, they just end up with these three or four fantastically talented attacking guys waiting on the pitch 40 metres away from the ball and it doesn't get to them. Um, so they're going to need to find a way around that if they play against Liverpool in the final. On a, on a river theme then I guess we've the thing we've got to ask you as well is um is this the end of the road for Gajardo do you think he's he's taken this team as far as he can and and if he has then um where do you think the uh the best landing spot for him is my instinct says that this isn't the end for him I, I don't think it is um I mean I mean there are two ways out of River for Gajardo he chooses to resign even though he has nowhere to particularly lined up to go to or someone comes in with a with an offer that he can't resist um so the first half of that i don't think it's going to happen i mean nobody knows for sure i don't think even he knows for sure but i don't think he's on the verge of just calling it a day he doesn't seem to be on the verge of resigning read articles this week in the aftermath of the final from the journalists who are closest to river um you know, he on the way back from Peru, he really lined up the the Superliga as an objective because let's not forget he's won almost every possible trophy in Argentina and South America except for the Argentinian domestic league. And we're about halfway through that, and River are really in a position to compete for that title. So he sort of got his eyes on that as the one thing that would complete his CV, really. Given that nowadays the that Club World Cup is generally a sort of unattainable objective for South American clubs in, in the way it was 20 or 30 years ago. So a Superliga title would complete his CV. Um, so no, I don't think he's on the verge of just resigning. But then the other half is completely unknown. Um, who knows if Barcelona are going to be looking for a new manager in a couple of months or if, if PSG might be or or any other big team in Europe, Man United perhaps. Uh, well, plenty know. of uh, plenty of Premier League jobs, I think, are going to come up in the in the next couple of months. Everton, West Ham, Tottenham. Oh, not Tottenham. It's gone. Yeah. Uh, Manchester United. <laughs> um, well, it might you be Tottenham. Know. You never know with Mourinho. <laughs> yeah. That could go sour. A lot of sooner as <laughs> leave life. True. Uh, yeah, this is true, actually. Yeah, And, you know, from, that side is very unpredictable. Could someone... Could a very tempting offer come in from Europe that that lures Gashara um, across the Atlantic? Yeah, that's that's definitely a possibility at the moment. Um, the president always repeats the same line. He has a contract until the end of 2021, and at the moment, the plan is for him to to complete that contract and to see it out. My instinct as, as a, a river, uh, well, I nearly used the word reporter. That would be an exaggeration as a as a very close river follower. Um, my gut instinct is that he'll see that contract out and and walk away at the end of 2021. That's been my sort of gut feeling for about a year or so now. So we'll see. I might be right. I might be wrong. But it'll be interesting to see 
how things pan out on the managerial merry-go-round over the next few months yeah it'll definitely be interesting and I, I think for, I, I can't for some reason I just can't see him taking one of the really really top jobs in Europe yet I mean it wouldn't be out of the realms of possibility that they would go for him because he's clearly one of the the best managers out there and, and one who would be um, available you would think if the right amount of money was paid um, but for me I just I'd kind of like to see him slot in uh, maybe a that rung below the the very very highest pressure jobs you know rather than going to Barcelona or PSG if he just went into a I don't know a Leon or, or a place like that where he get, maybe has a bit more time to to develop and if he does good work there then obviously that's only going to favour him uh, more and more and, and I would recommend to all our listeners if they haven't done already to to check out Tom's uh, great podcast on the man himself Marcelo Gachal which uh, is re- really good listening for anyone who wants a, a more in-depth uh, discussion about him. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that, actually, Tom. It's, it is worth a listen. And um, yeah, I, I'd agree with you, actually. I think that the feeling around Gachardo about a year ago, probably before that final with Boca, was that the natural next step would be um, perhaps Monaco, because he, he's an ex-Monaco player. He's an ex-PSG player and he's an ex-Monaco player. Uh a sort of Monaco, Lyon, um, you know, Valencia, Sevilla, Betis, you know, that was the type of job people generally imagined him landing in next. But just the, the way that he's coached this River team over the last 12 months, um, you know, has really opened the possibility that there's, there's quite open talk both in Spain and, and Argentina that Barcelona could be interested in him. So, yeah, the, the, that real top elite, uh, world managerial jobs are not necessarily certain, but they're definitely uh, a possibility in the near future. Yeah, I wonder if those two late Flamengo goals will have an impact on on anything here as well. Uh, just thinking that maybe Gajardo will look to maybe try and put that right next year, where if maybe he had won another Libertadores, that would what take him to three overall, and he, and he might think, well, it's, it's job done. Uh, but maybe he feels there's some unfinished business now. Well, yeah, it's a good point, actually, Adam. One of the guys, I was I watched it in a bar full of River fans very close to the stadium, and one of, one of my friends here, five minutes after the final whistle, he turned to me and said that. He says, well, well, at least Gashado will stay now, which is an interesting way of looking at it, because if he'd won that one, two Libertadores in a row, three in five years, he probably could have seen that as the point to call it a day, you know. But maybe, like you say, maybe now there is a motivation that will keep him in the job. Might might even put some potential new new employees off as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course it could do. Yeah, yeah. With these with these managers, sometimes it feels like there's a point where you can go, okay, job done. I, I've I've achieved the goal. I can leave. And then there's perhaps a point a little bit further down the road where you can go, okay, I could become one of the greatest managers ever of this club. And perhaps that's an incentive to stay a couple of years and to really, you know, secure his position as an absolute legend. You know, sometimes there's there's two stages. There's this getting sacked because you're not doing good enough. There's leaving on top and there's leaving with a huge legacy forever. And perhaps uh, Gajardo is thinking that as well in terms of his river uh, reputation. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to complete this section either without just congratulating Flamengo because they, uh, they, like you say, they played poorly in the final on Saturday, but they've produced just in terms of 
pure viewing uh, the football they've produced over the last three years, uh, only said three years there, three months has been on a level which I don't think we've really seen as South American football fans in the last, not since I've been watching for the last five, six, maybe even 10 years. So yeah, just hats off to, to how they really just assembled the team so quickly and got them playing such good football. Uh, you have to hand it to, to Jorge Jesus and his guys. They were, you know, they, perhaps on Saturday, many will say they didn't deserve the title, but there's no doubt that over the last three months, they've, they've just been absolutely phenomenal. So congratulations to them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Definitely. Uh, Flamengo deserve a lot of credit. Uh, they played some great football uh, and it was great to see. Um, going from something that's, more complicated and perhaps less less joyful in many ways, but perhaps something that's important. There's also been uh, unrest throughout South America, and it's obviously had an impact on the football, both in, in Bolivia and in Chile. Uh, Adam, if you could talk through the situation at the moment in Chile in, in terms of uh, on the ground and in terms of the, the football, um, that would be great to, to get an update on how things are, are going over there. Yeah, so Chilean football has been basically suspended for for, well, for the most part that they've managed to fit in a couple of games but overall it's been called off for about a month now um, just over a month in fact um, this is owing to a very uh, volatile uh, tense uh, social and political situation here in Chile, um, which started with students protesting against the increase of the of the metro fare in in Santiago, but it quickly became about a lot more than that. Um, I actually spoke a lot about this and um, and kind of a historical context to it as well on a podcast called Football Today with John McKenzie. That podcast is well worth checking out um, after you've listened to this one if you haven't already heard it and and there I explain a lot more about the political uh, situation here in Chile and, and exactly how that has ended up impacting on, on, the, on the football. Um, sticking to the football side of things so there's six matches six match days left here in Chile at the moment um, we will get a decision today from the Chilean FA as to whether or not the season will actually be completed. Um, it looks like it will be impossible for the football season to be completed um, in front of fans because over, well, in most polls I've seen in recent days, it's been about 60%. So 60% of football fans believe that the league season here should be um, basically finished early um, and the tables kept as they are. Nobody gets relegated um, and two teams come up as well um, and keep the, and keep the positions as they are in, in the other di- in the other divisions and promote whoever's in those places and um, and, re- and don't relegate anybody from the system. Um, now, that's obviously quite a complicated situation, especially if you factor in 
um, Libertadores and Sudamericana places, which need to be sorted. Um, but then again, it's, it's also a very complicated position that the main Barra groups here, the, the ultras, if you will, the, the main supporter groups who, who gather behind the, the goals of the stadium um, on, on match days, um, they believe that football should not return until there is justice in Chilean society. Now, as much as I agree with the, with the sentiment of that, I do feel that it's a slightly unrealistic request as you know it would it would take just it would take years for justice to be found in Chilean society whether that's for a new constitution or not and and if they're talking about the justice in terms of the heavy-handedness of the army and the police here in 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 the past month then that will also take a long time through the courts to for justice to be served there as well so yeah it's a, it's a very strange situation to be in as it does feel inappropriate in a lot of ways to play football at the moment but football does affect the lives of thousands of people here and, and hundreds depend on it for for work in, including myself of course um, so yeah uh, it's going to be fascinating to see exactly how this is resolved at the moment it looks like they could play games behind closed doors here in Chile, but there's no guarantee that will work because on Friday morning at 11am, a match kicked off in front of just 100 people. For all intents and purposes, it was pretty much behind closed doors. Um, but still, Barra Bravas broke in to, to the stadium uh, from Colo Colo uh, to interrupt that match between Union La Calera and Iquique. And Uni and La Calera were playing 150 kilometers from home, um, so yeah, it was pretty much a neutral venue, um, a very low interest game, not really a, a great deal riding on it at, at this point, and yet it was still interrupted because the buyers here don't believe any football should be played until the situation in the country is resolved. Um, so. One game was finished on that same day, Cobra, Cobra Sal, um, a very, very tiny team um, <laughs> who are based in basically the middle of the Atacama Desert, and that's why uh, they managed to complete their game, um, because no, no, none of the main bars could get to their stadium, basically, in the mid middle of the desert to, to, to stop it. Um, so, so they did complete 90 minutes there and a couple of weeks ago a, a match in Primera B was completed as well but aside from those two games and a one third tier game or a couple of third tier games no other professional football has taken place in the past month and, uh, and it looks like that will continue whether behind closed doors here in Chile like I say there's complications with that as the buyers will look to somehow stop that from happening so the last alternative is to take the is to take the season, the rest of the season over to Argentina, Mendoza, which is just a, about five hours across the border from Santiago, forty five minutes on a plane, um, and complete the rest of the fixtures there in Mendoza. Now, the Chilean FA that they seem very determined to try and finish the season because. 
not finishing the season will cost them millions of dollars. Um, and because of contracts not being completed. Um, and I think the presidents of the clubs are also very keen to get the season finished for various economic and for professional sporting reasons as well. The players did seem keen, uh, I think, last week, but with these new incidences of the buyers invading the pitch, they don't feel safe, so they're potentially going on strike, um, even if uh, even if the Chilean FA do demand that they play behind closed doors, it's very likely that the players will just go on strike anyway, so we won't get any matches there. So at the moment, it's very difficult to see... Um, an end to this and there's no guarantee that by the time the Libertadores starts in February that this situation is resolved either um, given the demands which are being put in place by by the leading fan groups here so yeah very worrying times here in Chile and uh, and yeah I was, uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure when my next update will, from, from Chile will come. Any questions? I saw that potentially they might might move it to Mendoza. Do you think that's a, a possibility there to, to yeah. see out the rest of the games? Well, I, I mentioned there at the end, you know, it is, it is just sort of 45 minutes on a plane across. But, you know, it's not just the top division that needs completing. It's two other divisions as well. So it's quite a lot of matches to take all the way over to Argentina. And that means you're taking, you know, hundreds of uh, of professional players and staff across there, as well as some of the admin staff, of course, as well. Um, yeah, so it's a like that does seem at the moment that that might have to be the solution, which is pretty crazy in itself. But logistically, you know, they've already said that that would be something very, very difficult to to actually achieve. Um, I think it there in Mendoza. There's there are there are three or four grounds, isn't there, Tom? You you were saying to me the other day. Yeah, yeah. You've got um, Independiente Rivadavia, Gimnasia y Esgrima de Mendoza, um, which are sort of up near the Parque San Martín, and you you have you've got the sort of uh, Estadio Malvinas, which is not too far away as well. So you could. Yeah, immediately when you mentioned before, I kind of thought, okay, well, there's there's a good hub kind of you could base base it around if you wanted to just crack on with a load of games yeah. in a short space of time. And obviously the Godoy Cruz Stadium across town as well. So, yeah, whether you could hold it just in Mendoza or you'd have to take it across to maybe a few cities in, in, yeah. in Argentina. Because the other um, problem... It's, it's difficult. The other problem is not just the stadiums, of course. I was thinking about this yesterday. It's also... Yeah, with with hundreds of players and staff to look after, you know, like how many hotels are potentially needed for that yeah, as well? Exactly. So, um, you, you're not all going to fit them in, especially as Mendoza. You know, it's it's not particularly big, is it? Like, no, I mean, it like does a have huge... about a, a million people there, but um, it doesn't feel big when you're there. Like the centre is especially, I remember when I was there, I felt like the centre felt especially small to me. And I can't really remember sort of any massive hotels about or anything like that. So, yeah. Um, 
and at this short notice as well, you know, they're not going to be able to book out one. So, yeah, but it seems crazy even discussing this, really. I think, I think they will probably try to play the games on private, in private stadiums here, mm. probably in Santiago now. The one they probably have the most success with and what they can probably even hire private security because of the area it's in. It's in quite a posh area of Santiago. And that's Universidad Católica Stadium. So that's privately owned. And it's also in, and it's also kind of backing on to quite a private area generally as well. So they'll probably be able to seal that off quite securely. I, I, can, see, I can see matches happening there. But the other private grounds here, so Colo Colo's ground, for example, I, I can't see any games being allowed to take place there especially as the neighborhood around there is like one of the you know one of the one of the areas a lot of the protesters are, are, are from um, and then there's also the issue of sat of Union Española's ground that's also in sort of an area where you would expect many protesters to come from as well um, and that's also a private ground. So, yeah, apart from Catolica Stadium, it, it's, it's difficult to see a matches taking place um, or being allowed to take place by the virus here. I was wondering, uh, in terms of uh, Libertadores Continental Qualification plus the national team as well, uh, obviously there's a tournament in January for Olympic qualifying is that going to be affected and how are they going to define the continental qualifiers? Any indication on that? Yeah. Yeah. So my feeling is that any commitments outside of Chile for the Chilean national sides, um, the Chilean women did play, interestingly enough, um, in, in Australia, a couple, of, a, a couple of games actually um, in, in Australia during the middle of this uh, whole crisis. Um, and, and they and they did their own protest over there. The, the Chilean under seventeen side competed in the in the under seventeen World Cup. So you know there are examples of Chilean sides competing in in tournaments and matches outside of Chile. Um, so that under twenty three tournament I don't see being a a problem for Chile to attend. I I think there is a worry that if they can't complete the season. If there's any punishments coming from Commonwealth um, to do with that, and yeah, and how that would affect the Chilean national team, certainly in view of these World Cup qualifiers in March, I've got a feeling that you know there's a possibility that if if it doesn't look like the situation will be resolved by then, then maybe Chile can re request to play their two matches in that window, both outside of Chile. Um, even if one is designated as a home match, um, maybe like they do in Asia, have to in in many places in Asia which have these kind of situations, and they would have to play it on a on a neutral ground. But yeah, very complicated. Yeah, I mean, obviously as well, people will have seen that there's been uh, protests and there's been uh, disturbances in Colombia. Um, it's started with a, a, a national strike on a broad range of issues um, and largely down to the government's failure to respond to calls in regards to protection of indigenous rights and student protests. Uh, also been a number of journalists, every couple of days a journalist or a social leader has been, has been killed in Colombia and there hasn't been a great deal of response. So 
there's a wide range of issues you factor in finance uh, issues of poverty and and there's a, there's a lot of issues that contributed to the march that took place uh, around a week ago Thursday um it was a march that was again across a lot of communities it was very interesting it was very impressive to see uh, also there were football fans in Medellin from both Nacional and Medellin bitter rivals on the field but coming together for this march and and the march was largely peaceful obviously uh, in the evening as you'll have seen uh, issues in in Cali with with some looting um and the same happened in in Bogota there were disturbances and, and there's been a lot of questions asked and, and not many answers given as to to the reason for this for this violence people have suggested and there's evidence to suggest that some members of the security service were provoking violence also perhaps involved in destruction of property as well and uh, and there's a lot of questions a lot of anxiety uh, a young man has been killed as well during the protest so there's a lot of intense uh, atmosphere in colombia people are obviously worried that we'll end up in a similar situation to chile i don't think that's going to be the case but people are upset in a way that's going to change colombia moving forward um, many would argue for the good. Um, in terms of the impact on football, um, there's been a few games that have been brought forward uh, to earlier in the day to avoid the protests that have, have often been at their most vociferous in the evenings. Um, so far, the games haven't been cancelled, um, but uh, it's something that's being monitored moving forward. In Colombia, in terms of the league, we're coming forward to the final. The last games we played this week in the in the semi-final group stage. Uh, currently, Junior and America are top of their respective groups, but things can change by the time this pods out, and then we'll get to the final. Um, so we'll see what happens. But it does seem in Colombia that the protests aren't going to impact on football, and it and hopefully we'll see the government responding to the calls uh, from the the population. And it really is beyond left and right, beyond political allegiances now. It does seem like there's a very widespread protest in Colombia, which which hopefully will, will re- result in some positive changes from the government uh, and the authorities. But it does seem as though the football will be finished in the next couple of weeks in Colombia without disruption. Um, and then obviously over Christmas, we'll see how things pan out. But it does, uh, does seem as though we've avoided the worst of the, dis- the destruction. Uh, there have been incidents, um, but it, it seems the football is going to be able to continue. But that hasn't been the case in Bolivia, no? How, how is the situation there in Bolivia? Well, I understand that they did manage to play a uh, round of fixtures for um, at this past weekend, and that was for the first time in two months they've, they've managed to do that. So it does seem like the Bolivian league there is finally back on back on track. Um, and I think they've got until the 21st of December, I think, to finish. This goes for Chile as well. But, you know, they should be looking to finish the season. I think it is by the 21st of December, as that's when Commonwealth are demanding that the Copa Libertadores spots are sorted out by. So, and the sort of America on the spots as well. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think they might be able to just fit it in now if Bolivia goes forward without any more problems although I still think they've got like nine match days to fit in about three and a half weeks so that might be quite tricky um, and Chile what will have about six match days to fit in about three and a half weeks as well at the moment so 
yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting whether that can be achieved. Everything okay in Argentina, Tom? No threat of football stopping there anytime soon? <laughs> no. Fortunately, we're in a very strange position in Argentina. We suddenly seem to be one of the most stable countries in the region, which is uh, not a position you usually associate with Argentina. So, uh, no, football's going along just fine. There's the, the normal economic chaos, or no, not I shouldn't say normal, there's an above average level of economic chaos going on. But, you know, political side and, and in terms of the protesting and things, there's, you know, everything's in order. There's a the transition of governments is coming up on the 10th of December and it's all been respected and it's all following the very constitutional procedures. So, um, no, um, you know, Argentina's got a million problems, but fortunately there's not any, uh, you know, any of the chaos that you've seen in countries like Bolivia in, in recent weeks. Um, yeah, the football will be, barring anything completely un- unpredictable or uh, not forecast, the, the football will break for normal as uh, for summer as it normally does on I think the 8th of December is the last league game this year in Argentina yeah before it gets too hot anyway I think I think we're going to round up the podcast there um, more updates on the way hopefully in the in the, in the next month from us um, Tom I'll come straight back to you as I know, as I know you need to get off first so where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, yes, you can find me if you just look for River Plate in English on Twitter. You'll find me. Uh, the handle is at carp, C-A-R-P, underscore English. And yeah, I'll be following everything to do with River Plate on there. And Simon, where can people find you? Yeah, so on Twitter, at Simon Edwards SAF. Uh, as I say, Colombian season's coming to a interesting climax in the next few days, and then we'll have a couple of finals. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. Plus, we've got the Copa America draw in Colombia at the start of December. So uh, plenty of things to look forward to before we get into Christmas. And then, uh, yeah, transfer madness coming up. So for Colombia stuff, you can follow me on Twitter. And apart from in the fine city of Norwich, where can people find you, Tom Robinson? <laughs> yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter at TomRobbo89. And in person shortly in in Japan, I'll be checking out their football scene uh, for a couple of weeks um, as their league seems to be wrapping up. And uh, yeah, there'll be there'll be probably a bit of tweets on football and uh, a bit of travel as well, probably. Any South Americans to check out in Japan? Have you, have you well, I mean, I'm sure there are probably a couple of Brazilians over there, but um, I've uh, yeah, I've not really um, Do your done research. too much research into any. Come on. Yeah, well. It's more, more Spaniards, more the Spaniards that are taking over out there. So, um, yeah, hopefully I'll get a chance to see Vissel Kove or some, something like that. OK, well, thanks, guys, for, for joining me on this pod and this episode of the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. If you have enjoyed listening, then please rate and review us. Uh, we'll be back, hopefully, by uh, at, at least once before Christmas. But, you know, don't count on it. All what's left to say is a huge thanks once again to the guys for joining me and and for you guys for listening, and it's goodbye.